Hello and welcome to this Forum for Philosophy event organised with the LSE Philosophy Department. I'm Shahida Bari, I'm one of the fellows of the Forum for Philosophy and I'm your chair. For today's event, we'll be exploring the outer philosophical reaches of space. At the moment, it seems like everybody is angling to get into space, from Elon Musk to William Shatner. Some say that we are on the eve of a brand new space age. But if so, should we be asking deep questions about what this means for humanity? Anthropological questions about who we are and what we can accomplish, and ethical questions about our right to extend our domain. Not to mention what happens if we discover that that domain already belongs to somebody, something else. Joining me to discuss this are Clara Kapova, a social cultural, a socio-cultural anthropologist. She's worked on assessing the socio-economic impact of space exploration as a research fellow at the European Space Agency and Human Robotic Exploration Directorate based in the European Space Research and Technology Centre in the Netherlands. Her research asks, what does it mean to be human in the space age? Neil McDonnell from the University of Glasgow, who works within philosophy on topics concerning immersive technology, causation and safety engineering. He's been a visiting researcher at the National Institute of Aerospace and the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, NASA. And maybe we'll find out from him why NASA want to talk to philosophers. And Kelly Smith, who works in departments of philosophy and religion and biological sciences at Clemson University in the USA. He is also a C. Calhoun Lemon Fellow of the Rutland Institute for Ethics, and his scholarly interests include bioethics, religion and science. He's also been exploring philosophical issues surrounding the search for life on other planets. Hello, Clara, Neil and Kelly. Hi. Hello. Nice to be here. Great to have you. Thank you so much for joining us. So our audience very often know the score. We'll be talking together, the, the four of us, for the first part of the discussion, and then we'll open up to take questions from our audience. And if you are in the audience, you can, of course, start asking your questions now by submitting them via the Q&A box, and we'll do our best to get, to get to them towards the second half of the discussion. So let's get started. Neil, maybe we can start with you and the question I posed. At, at the top why is nasa getting in touch with a philosopher what, what do they want from you and and what can philosophy give to the space to the study of space more broadly uh, yes so um perhaps it's better to say that one part of nasa wanted to talk to a philosopher i'm pretty sure plenty of other parts didn't even know it <laughs> happened so that was fine uh, but i wrote my phd on causation as you you kind of alluded to that was my specialist area and um when you think about some of the issues that go into any form of aeronautics and, and, and space exploration safety is an enormous consideration there is the backwards consideration of what has gone wrong in cases where it went wrong in the past in accident investigation and the kind of forwards looking concern of whether or not the system you're about to attempt to use is safe enough or not there's actually a whole lot of layers of different uh, philosophical issues hiding in there but the one that they reached out to me about was about this kind of backwards and forwards looking causation going backwards and then epistemology like how do we know what is good enough evidence going forward um so those are the ones that they reached out about and the, the work that I ended up doing was looking at some of the finer detail in the frankly quite mundane category <laughs> of trying to work out what the rules should be about communicating about these complex systems. So uh, fairly recently there was a, a, a big problem with the 737 um, Airbuses I think it was 
uh, the 73 Max, uh, where they, they had a fault uh, in a secondary system that reported to a primary safety system that something very bad was happening and kind of forced the nose of the plane uh, in a way that it shouldn't go, creating more uh, problems uh, as a result. So what that was is a very complex system. You change one component ostensibly to make it better. And in fact, things were made mm. worse. So th th this is just the nature of complex systems in general. And the consideration for aeronautics is just about everything they put up in the, the sky has got extremely high stakes and they're very complex systems. So they wanted to talk to me about, um, about communicating about causal findings where people often disagree about what went on in the past and there's reason to believe that some philosophy of causation might help them communicate more clearly about that. And looking forward to think about what type of things ought to count as good evidence, what kind of reasoning structures ought to be reliable about how we decide what happens uh, going forward. So those are those issues. I happen to think the other ones in there are to do with value judgment. So metaphysics is the causation bit. We've got epistemology about this forward looking. What do we what do we know? How confident can we be about the system? But we've got this value issue on the notion of safety. Mm -hmm. When is something safe? Well, safe isn't like some mathematically defined limit on something. It isn't some probabilistic defined thing. It's a value judgment. When's it safe? It's safe for a fireman to go up that ladder to save 10 lives, but the same ladder to, to wash a window might be a bit more con concerning. So you've got to think of what's at stake. What do we gain from it? And when it comes to the issues of space exploration, that's kind of where this comes uh, uh, to, to, to real uh, I guess the forefront for me is to think about when we think about exploring space with humans, sending them out or letting them go, um, then we are taking extremely high risk uh, uh, endeavours. We're doing so in incredibly complex systems of which we can't be sufficiently sure about what's going to happen next. And I want to say at what gain what do we gain out of this? Mm -hmm. and clearly, scientifically, we gained a lot from going to, to the moon and, and, and the entire Apollo program. But despite the fact that the received wisdom is that the Apollo program closed down for financial reasons, um, I'm led to believe, and this isn't like some NASA insider thing, it was somebody I met uh, who used to work on the program, uh, but the, the, I was led to believe that, that um, safety was by far the biggest concern for the team working on that issue at the time, and they were happiest that it was cancelled uh, on account of, of safety concerns, not to do with the money. So you think about what are the gains, the scientific gains were there, but these days we should be asking, couldn't drones do that for us? Why do humans mm. need to go? Is it maybe vanity that pushes us to be the person that went? Couldn't we get this another way? So that is the kind of uh, my angle uh, on thinking about uh, this as a philosopher, thanks to the, to the uh, intro to the issues at NASA that I got, and the very mundane part of <laughs> working out when you can put a new coffee machine in an aeroplane. <laughs> uh, but this is, yeah. this is how it comes around. You're being very, I think you're being very self-deprecating, modest there, Neil. I mean, most of us, I think, even um, even if it is just about the question of when you can fit coffee machines into airbuses, um, this is the closest any of us will get to NASA. And I wonder whether from your, your experience, as limited as you, you say it is, um, whether from your experience you have a sense more broadly that the aeronautical engineers, the, the people involved with the literal nuts and bolts of getting people in the air or space, whether they are asking philosophical questions, whether there is a philosophical understanding or a sense that philosophy might, in, might inform what they're doing. Um, 
I, I think there is an appetite in certain corners who are, who are working hard to make uh, the rest of their industry, not just in NASA, but like the safety engineering industry, for example, uh, attend to these issues. And they're doing, they're doing good work. I think there is the kind of natural suspicion of what philosophy can add to this, being yeah. the, the handmaiden for the sciences or whatever. Um, but, but I was taken aback, very surprised, very taken aback and very pleased to find that the team I went to to work within, I was working with a very specific little corner within a bigger team of, of formal uh, formal safety methods, um, safety assurance, sorry. Um, and uh, this team, um, when I was paraded to them and welcomed on my first day walking down the corridors, um, uh, about half of them had read my PhD thesis. Oh my goodness, wow which meant that at least twice as many people as had ever previously read my PhD thesis <laughs> had read my PhD thesis. It was really staggering to me. Yeah. And they'd worked their way through it and they had like meaningful questions about parts of it. I mean, this was just a, an incredible thing. So open-mindedness is certainly a cultural uh, aspect yeah. to what, what people are doing there. And that will include philosophy when it comes at them the right way. I think I am definitely not the right philosopher to talk to people about epistemology under most circumstances. But in that context, I think what ha what became clear was I could communicate with them in a way that was digestible for them and that that was the that was actually uh, the important missing link for what yeah. I was able to do which you know they, they may or may not want to know some of the finer points of counterfactual theories of causation <laughs> or they may want some of the information from that literature distilled in a way as yeah. to render it useful to them and I, I think that's where my uh, my skill here uh, was valuable to them and well, yeah and hopefully it, 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 it lets other philosophers into that conversation too. Yeah, well, I was going to ask whether you could make it digestible for us too. The, the forum is a, 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 a public philosophy organisation, so we're always interested in making philosophical terms accessible. And so I'm going to press you a little bit. You were talking about philosophy of causation. So what does that mean in the context of what you were doing for NASA? Sure. So um, the philosophy of causation is concerned with the question of what causation is, quite generally speaking. Um, there are, uh, there's a long history of asking a question like this, but I, I like to start with Hume, who said, you know, we can't see it. We can't touch it. It's not tangible. Um, we know now it doesn't matter how good your microscope gets. You ain't going to find a, a causal datum right move from one point to another. Causation is something else. And, and Hume thought that because it was very hard to say what it was, he thought, it wasn't really a thing in the world, and that instead it was our way of picking out patterns of regularity that happened between things. Uh, subsequently, people have pointed out, well, that sounds a lot like correlation, which we distinguish from causation. So I guess the way I think about the philosophy of causation these days is trying to find the magical ingredient that's missing, that you take correlation, add the magic ingredient, and you get causation. Well, what's the magic ingredient? So the, the literature uh, on this topic is about bouncing examples back and forward off each other, very acceptable cases of breaking windows and very simple cases like that, and asking, is this a case of causation? Well, yes, goes the, 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 the nodded reply. And then the question is, well, what about it makes it a case of causation? Right. And then we get into the, the brass tacks. Now, what we've learned through that is that there are some problematic cases, some cases which are a bit confusing. And maybe one of the ones I like to think of um, is uh, an example about John McEnroe. It's a, it dates people rather quickly, whether they know who I'm talking about there or not. And many doesn't? students don't. <laughs> many students don't. But here's the example, right? So uh, John McEnroe uh, is tense before he takes his shot. He, he serves, he serves awkwardly. So we might say his tension caused him to serve awkwardly. Right. But if I just change how I describe what happens, I could say McEnroe's tension caused him to serve. 
I've just missed out. I've just re-described what happened. Right. I've dropped out uh, the adverb. Suddenly that sounds like the wrong thing to say. It didn't cause him to serve. He was going to serve anyway, goes the idea. And what we get from that is a sense that just tweaking the words and tweaking the description can make a true thing sound false or a false thing sound true in some cases as well. And that there's a particular shortcut to getting clarity there about saying what the alternative things were. So if you say McEnroe's being tense rather than relaxed, cause him to serve awkwardly uh, rather than gracefully, say, then we get... We, we clarify what we mean. We triangulate what we're mm. referring to in a really important way. So what I brought to the table over when I was talking to NASA was about the potential for finding cases where this would have helped in accident investigations. Yes. If somebody said A caused B, where if they did this kind of four-place thing, that would have maybe communicated it better. I did this through gritted teeth because I really <laughs> dislike the theory of causation that endorses this as the right answer. <laughs> okay. I think it's massively helpful at communicating and therefore yeah. a useful tool my philosophical uh, uh, prejudices notwithstanding, yeah. uh, for, for, for people to use. And that's the, that's the kind of thing I think philosophers can bring, that kind of that, clarity of community. Yeah. That's so helpful because I can see how you are telling me, uh, how you are explaining the way in which philosophy might enable these engineers, for instance, to reflect on their reasoning processes, the answers that they already have, but which they may not already be reflecting on and understanding the causations or correlations. That's super helpful. I wonder whether Kelly and uh, Clara wanted to come in or if they had any remarks um, about your thoughts there, about the way in which philosophy might be informing uh, aeronautical engineering, NASA. Well, I've, I've worked a bit with NASA, and I, I, mostly what I work on are concepts of life and sort of ethical social questions. I think there are a lot of people at NASA that are interested in these kinds of questions. They have tried to get organized in the past and not had enough critical mass. Um, and, and then the other problem that they have is they're not really trained in this. And so a lot of times you get people who have really good intentions and they're really serious about this, but they also have fairly naive takes on on ethics. I, I remember going to a conference once and I, I told a student that, you know, I thought that that rational creatures probably had a larger ethical value than non-rational creatures, which is a standard position. And he said, yeah, but what's your ethical view? <laughs> now, you might disagree with me, but not to understand that that is a long-standing classic ethical position, that, I mean, it's kind of hard to say that without knowing a whole lot about it. So, I think there's potential there, but NASA and other organizations, I think, need help from the mm -hmm. humanities and social sciences. And that's that's one of the things I've been trying to do. So. Well, it, it, implicit in that is the idea that you think it's useful for them to have this knowledge, right? Well, yeah. I mean, there's no doubt that the kinds of things we're doing in space right now have enormously important implications for the future of humanity. And if you were to just pose the question to an ordinary person, do you think that those kinds of decisions should be made without any input from ethics and humanity? I think almost everybody would say no, <laughs> but because of the way the system is set up, you know, NASA, for example, is primarily a science organization. So they don't really do philosophy, they do science. And that means that all the funding and all the prestige goes to the scientists and engineers and people like me and Clara and, and everybody else is sort of on the sidelines looking in Sometimes we get a hearing, sometimes we don't. Um, this is one of the reasons why I basically just set up my own organization because I decided at some point that I was never gonna be able to do something within NASA that was really self-sustaining 
and it was better to set up something outside NASA and then offer to collaborate if they want to. So, yeah. So you, you, um, built, you built your own spaceship, Kelly. It sounds like um, <laughs> Clara. Did you want to come in? Did you have any remarks yes, on Neil? Yes, I have a comment, but it's mostly related to the European research community, mm-hmm. um, not uh, related to NASA. What I can see is that the science community community is becoming aware of the societal and ethical topics related to space exploration and space research, which is why they open up the dialogue and invite researchers from social sciences and humanities to take part in discussion and give them exactly the expertise, opinions and uh, explanations they need. And I think it's a big task and responsibility of social scientists and uh, philosophers and everybody who works in humanities to really understand that we need to be able to also explain our part of work to them in very simple engaging uh, terms. Um, I was involved in a a big project uh, on astrobiology and society, and we've produced a white paper that actually included topics, um, uh, societal, historical, philosophical, theological questions, together with um, economical aspect of space exploration, planetary protection related to astrobiology research, potential conflicts of interests and commerce. So I think the demand is there and I'm really happy to see the dialogue being established and involving more and more people internationally. Yeah, we're going to find out more about your work in a moment. Um, I'm really excited (laughs) to hear about it. But I want to turn to you first, Kelly. Uh, I wanted to ask you, Kelly, about about the nature of our our new space race as it's emerging at the moment, because it's not so much the USA versus Russia as Musk versus Branson. So should we be concerned, Kelly, um, about the fact that space is now the domain of tech billionaires and entrepreneurs? Well, I'll answer that like a classic philosopher, yes and no. Um, You know, when you ask that kind of question, it's not entirely clear what you're asking, but but one obvious interpretation is you're asking, are you know Musk and Bezos and Branson the right people to make momentous decisions about the future of humanity? And the answer to that question is, well, obviously not. I mean, no randomly chosen three people from the population would be the right three people to make those kinds of decisions. So obviously the answer to that question is no, but that makes it not a very interesting question. There are a number of questions that are sort of related to that that I think are much more interesting. So, you know, one thing is if you're asking the question the way I just phrased it, the implication is that it is a real possibility to exclude the billionaires from this. And then the question becomes, okay, exactly what do you have in mind in terms of excluding people? And exactly how are you going to do that? Are you talking about getting an international agreement amongst all international governments and then having an enforcement arm like a space police because that that's an interesting conversation but people never have that in mind right or are you saying something like um if we ban international i mean if we ban private enterprise in space the assumption is that'll make everything better because national governments are running things but you're not you're not talking about the big three anymore it's not just the united states and the russians and the chinese it's you know, the United Arab Emirates and Israel. And so there's 129 countries on earth. The cost of getting into space is going down dramatically. Uh, It's not at all clear that if you just 
kick out the private players that you're going to have anything like what we're used to having back in the old days when there were only a couple of governments that could do it. Um, and then, of course, as the resident American here, I think I'm contractually obligated to say something about the value of free enterprise. So, you know, <laughs> it's just it's just true that free market initiatives are, can be very powerful forces. And, you know, they can do lots of bad things and they can do lots of good things. Um, one example I think that's relevant here is the Human Genome Project, which the United States government was going to spend four or five billion dollars on. And just like any government project, they were doing it extremely cautiously and they had a very long time window. And then Craig Ventner came along and said, well, this is stupid. And he founded his own company and got his own private capital and started doing shotgun sequencing of the human genome and basically forced the government to completely change their plans because they were going to get scooped by a private company who was doing it you know, better and faster. And it seems like a pretty good bet that there are going to be examples like that in space where private enterprise is going to be more innovative. They're going to be more flexible. They're going to be able to do things without raising taxes, which always makes people upset, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, my, my basic attitude here is that I think the long-term future of humanity lies in space. And I think that the reason the entrepreneurs are getting involved is that they agree with that and they're willing to spend billions of dollars to make it happen. So the really interesting question is not so much, should we have private enterprise in space or not? The really interesting question is, how should we structure that so that we can get as much of the goods of private investment and avoid as many of the evils of private investment as possible? Well, Kelly, how should we structure that so that we can get as much of the goods of private investment and less of the evils? Well, I mean, the, one of the biggest problems that you have, regardless of whether you're talking about private enterprise or you're talking about national players, is there's basically nothing there right now. The, it is, I have my students to read basically all the space law there is in an afternoon because it's, it's like 10 or 12 pages and it's all very vague. Um, and so, you know, in order to be able to pass regulations that are going to be meaningful, you first have to have clear regulations. And you also have to have some mechanism of enforcement. And right now, we don't have either one of those things. So, you know, what's going to happen in the next 10 or 20 years, I think, is that you know, you're going to get a whole bunch of space lawyers being trained. And they're going to get in there and you know, people can roll their eyes about the lawyers. But you do need the lawyers sometimes. Um, and then the, the biggest, I think, open question is going to be, you know, to what extent do we allow private ownership of resources in space? Mm -hmm. All the founding documents of the space age all talk about resources being for the good of humankind. But a cynic might say that that was because they couldn't get at them when those documents were written. So of course, they come up with the most idealistic take on things. But now that people are seriously talking about asteroid mining, and by the way, the, the Zoom background behind me is Psyche 16, which okay. is an asteroid, metal-rich asteroid that was discovered that is estimated to have $10,000 quadrillion worth of metals in it. The minute you identify something like that, um, the idea that you're going to somehow set up some organization to mine that for the benefit of humankind becomes problematic because everybody is going to be trying to get that and trying to make money from it. I'm not saying it's impossible, mm -hmm. but but figuring out a way to share something like that in a way that benefits humankind collectively and equitably 
is on a par with developing an economic system that's an alternative to capitalism that solves all the problems. So wow. it wow. <laughs> may not be impossible, but boy, is it hard. Well, Kelly, I feel listening to you, I feel like you're a few thousand light years ahead of me in thinking about <laughs> the possibilities of space, right? But another way of interpreting the question I asked, should we be concerned about the fact that space is the domain of tech billionaires and entrepreneurs, is to say, is to, is to rephrase it and to say, should we care in a way? I, I know that you do care because you think that space is the future. But I, I think that, you know, I, I think about the way that my parents' generation, uh, people who watch the moon landing, were invested in the space race. And I don't see that in the same way, not a kind of general public investment in 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 Bezos, in Branson, or in Musk. And I wonder whether many people think, well, this is just a plaything for some very rich men, and we ought not to be bothered about this. This is something that's happening literally in a different <laughs> stratosphere, um, and it's not going to affect us. But I, I wonder whether you think, well, I think you do think, we should care that it's, oh, it's yeah. being, yeah. We should care. And I think the fact that, that people don't care too much is a function of the fact that it's been so difficult to get into space. But the cost of going into space is plummeting. And it will continue to plummet. The rate at which it plummets is probably going to increase exponentially. So, so once it becomes practical for people to set up private companies and do things in space, when that's really practical, then I think people's attitude are going to change. But I would also say, I mean, one of the things... I'm a little bit unusual because I came into this field from philosophy of biology. So I was sort of a biologist that did theoretical stuff. A lot of the people that do applied ethics work tend to be sort of self-selected for not liking the difficulties that technologies create. And I don't have that bias, right? So, you know, I think the bottom line is we're going to go into space and it makes sense. It's very strange when people argue that we shouldn't go into space because of all the problems on earth. Because that's a recipe for never going into space. There will always be problems on earth, right? And, and it also assumes that the problems on earth are going to be solvable without the resources of space, which strikes me as highly debatable. Um, and I just think about it, if you think about it objectively, we're this species on this little tiny planet in sort of a nondescript segment of the Milky Way galaxy. And we're gonna decide that we don't ever want to leave this planet, that like we just, nah, we, you know, there's a huge universe out there with all kinds of resources and opportunities, but no, we, we wanna perfect this little tiny globe that we're on and maybe risk getting wiped out by an asteroid or something like that. Because, you know, we're, I mean, that just doesn't strike me as a plausible story to tell about humanity in the long run. Maybe it applies to, you know, Gen Z right now, but yeah. in the long run, that's not gonna that's not gonna be our story yeah I want to open up to invite Clara and Neil to come in if they have have questions for you Clara you've been smiling and laughing a little bit <laughs> as Kelly's been talking along I wonder if it's because you're agreeing violently agreeing or, or not I wasn't laughing at all I was <laughs> smiling because first of all uh, coming back to the space law and regulations and reinforcement as Kelly rightfully has mentioned so we should remember that the spaceflight interest or capability is now spread across all six continents. It's not only the traditional or established space agencies, but it's only also uh, the entering space agencies or space research centers, which we could see emerging in Korea, Brazil, Egypt, Australia has recently established uh, their space agency, Israel, India, etc., etc to which blend of powers also uh, the, the entrepreneurs 
um, are um, entering or, or are already part of it. So the new space race is not only international, but it's also a space race between, let's say, commerce and, and government. So the, that is the big question, I think, for the international space law, which uh, maybe people in who are listening in will appreciate that we do have a moon treaty, which has to until recently, or it, it is still valid, but it does regulate the space activities um, in establishing the peaceful purpose um, of space. Um, so that is one thing I wanted to add. And the second thing, well, space, it's not only a resource. Uh, full of things that we think we could bring back, but it is also a tool which could improve condition on Earth. So the United Nations Office for Outer Space Affairs has recognized space as one of the, um, as one of the tools to contribute to sustainable development on Earth. We do have a strong evidence of what satellite data can, can do for people um, in um, um, disaster affected areas. I know that the satellite data are being used by the, and I promised myself I won't use the acronyms, so I'm going to spell it out, the, the WHO, the World Health Organization, by the FAO, uh, the, the Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations. So we see benefits that space and space research and exploration bring back to Earth without yeah. actually uh, being designed to do that. It's almost like a side effect or side benefit or a result of it. And so that's uh, one thing I would like to say. And the third thing, uh, and that is uh, coming back to what Kelly said about this um, asteroid mining, there's a little conceptual misunderstanding about what mining in space actually is. So for space agencies, mining for resources on, on the lunar surface, surface, it's called the ISRU, in-situ resource utilization, is the next step for spaceflight. So basically you fly to moon, you use the regolith to extract uh, elements from it that, that could then provide fuel for your spaceship. <laughs> <laughs> or um, um, and provide oxygen for the astronauts or the settlers. While another thing is to really find um, a gold or an asteroid or made of, of resources that we then mine and bring to Earth. So I wanted to make that distinction. Thank you. Um, that, that's yeah. a, a really fascinating insight. I'm yes, so glad that we have such expertise to be able to draw on. Um, and Neil, I wanted to give you a chance to, to reply to, to Kelly too. Sure, I, had a, I guess I had a question, but you mentioned early on, Kelly, that you thought that, um, and quite persuasively so, we shouldn't be letting these people make, uh, you know, a remarkably important decision for us. And and when you mentioned the problem of capitalism being, being somehow inherent in all this, you're not wrong. We've let some people get enough resources together to treat something extremely serious as their plaything. Um, but... I wondered what those issues were that you had in mind more specifically, because we can, you know, you get to think about, you know, asteroids and whatnot. Yeah, another one will be along shortly. <laughs> there's enough more <laughs> out there, right? There's enough for everyone. There's plenty. It's as good as infinite from our point of view, given <laughs> how many lifetimes and generations it would take to, to, to get to anywhere like the limits of what's out there. So uh, this sense of 
infinite, yeah, it's a bit further away, a bit more difficult or something. What, what, what great danger is there that Elon Musk can do? Like, what things can he do that would have that kind of really important future impact on us? Well, I mean, we're at the very beginning of what I would say is the real space age. The Apollo was was a false start. But so, you know, the Musks and the Bransons are not going to be able to do anything probably in the next 20 or 30 years that's really going to be that big of a deal. What they're going to do is they're going to set precedents, right? And, and one of the things I've argued in the past is that when people talk about these kinds of things, it's actually kind of important to be clear about timeframes, because there's a big difference between you know an engineer who's interested in what can I do in my in my research career that's 20 or 30 years down the road, and someone who's interested in talking about you know a permanent settlement on Mars, which is at least 100 years down the road, if not longer. But I think you know in the immediate future, what what people like Branson are going to do is they're going to get into space and they're going to build out the infrastructure as quickly as they can. So people are going to want to go to the moon and they're going to want to start mining water on the moon and using that to manufacture rocket fuel, which will dramatically decrease the price of moving stuff around in, in the near Earth area. They're also going to be not only national governments, but also probably private players who want to set up bases, bases on the moon and bases on Mars. And that raises all kinds of issues about well, who governs these bases? I mean, like, you know, can Amazon have an Amazon base on Mars and it's run by Amazon law? Is that like a thing that we want to allow? And so it's not so much that they're going to do anything in the next few years that are going to be a problem. It's that currently we have basically a Wild West environment where, you know, the first person to get out there and do it gets to do whatever they want to do. And then people are going to point to that and say, well, Bezos did this thing it's only fair that I get to do something along the same lines. So my basic take is not, I mean, I'm not arguing for particular kinds of regulations because I'm not smart enough, right? What, what I argue is we need to be thinking about this really carefully right now. We need to get a whole bunch of really smart people from a lot of different disciplines to think this stuff through and really figure out, you know, what kinds of things do we definitely, definitely need to regulate? What kinds of things might we regulate and what kinds of things should we definitely not regulate? <laughs> and that's going to, that's going to take a long time and a lot of people to think through, but it's a bit like the ELSI project that was associated again with the human genome project. They basically took 1% of their budget and hired a bunch of humanists and social scientists to sit around and talk about what the world might look like when genetic technologies are every day and how, maybe we want to do some things now to head off the worst bits of that. It's the same kind of thing, I think, in space. Kelly, I don't know whether to be excited or terrified by the picture <laughs> you're painting for me, um, but maybe uh, I'll decide at the end. I want to remind our audience that they can ask questions via the chat box function. Uh, there are questions coming in already, but it'd be lovely to have more. Um, and I'm going to turn to you, Clara, uh, to ask a little bit more about your work, which you've started to, to tell us about too. You, you've been working with the European Space Agency in your capacity as a socio-cultural anthropologist. Can you give us a sense of what you've been doing and, and, the, and the questions that you've been asking? Okay, so uh, let me start from the beginning. Um, I am a trained socio-cultural anthropologist, but specialized in uh, what is called science and technology studies, which is the field within broader anthropology. And I also specifically focus on space and society. 
I was looking really into interactions um, between the space sciences and the society, really looking into how technologies and discoveries affect um, um, our daily lives or our worldviews. And my work has been focused around the question, what does it really mean to be human? Uh, which is a, a very big anthropological question, but for me it is, what does it mean to be human in the space age? So I think uh, today we could ask the question, what does it mean to be human in the new space race? <laughs> um, so initially I was looking into a search for life beyond Earth. I was writing about how we project or imagine the other life forms and what does it really say about us as humans. So I was looking into images that's been sent on the Voyager and Pioneer probes. And later I was also writing about astrobiology because searching for life beyond Earth or trying to find out whether... Um, uh, or where, where the life originally came from or how it emerged, it's one of the very big origin stories, which has a huge um, societal, philosophical and theological implications. So I worked also with the astrobiology community in Europe, as I mentioned already on the, on the white paper about astrobiology and society. And I was also looking into implementation of new technologies. And then eventually I started to work with the European Space Agency, with the Human and Robotic Exploration Directorate, who were especially interested in how we how they want to understand how to measure and assess the socioeconomic impact of space exploration on the society, and especially how it relates to the Sustainable Development Goals. Mm -hmm. So it is about the value, it's about the actual uh, benefits of space exploration to society. So. Um, that's um, what I'm currently researching. That sounds like a lot, Clara. <laughs> um, but I, I want to, I know that it's very important for you to distinguish between space tourism, which we're seeing potentially via uh, Branson and Musk and Bezos, and space exploration. W what is the distinction for you? For me personally, so you go to space to explore, to do the science, you really have a very specific science question you would like to answer. So I've heard a lot about Elon Musk wanting to go to Mars, but I haven't really understand whether there is a, a question, why do you want to go to Mars and what is it exactly you would like to do there? So the NASA and ESA exploration program are very clear. We want to search for life on Mars. Has there ever been Mars on life? Uh, life on Mars, sorry, life on Mars. Is there an extant life? Can we find relics of it and evidence of, of water and where has it been? And, and um, these are very important science questions that uh, should be answered. So we have Perseverance rover on the surface right now. ESA is launching the ExoMars 2022 next year, uh, addressing exactly the same question. So that's for me, it's the primary difference. You want to understand the nature of the world around you. You do have a goal, a clear goal. With space tourism, um, I really don't know how to define it. It's basically you use space to sell service. Um, it's, it's uh, very attractive to people, of course. Space is, um, has this appeal that um, 
it, it, it is just there. It's almost like the quote about the Mount Everest. Why would you climb it? Because it's just there, <laughs> which was, I think, what, what uh, Mallory has said. So yeah. um, I don't know if I answered your question. Yeah, uh, no, you, you did. Yeah. You absolutely did. And I, I, I wanted to pick up on something you mentioned in your work with these space agencies, which was that, that they are asking questions about how what they do impacts on things like sustainable development goals. So how do you do you answer that question? What, what is the answer to that question? I and mean, oh. we've already sort of started talking a little bit about you know, the ecological implications. Yes, of course. So um, we know that space exploration brings, of course, the knowledge game, the advancement of science, and an enormous amount of data. Um, uh, but also it is an inhibitor of the economic growth. Uh, there are new technologies, there is new intellectual properties coming and, and new new devices coming out of space exploration that are being used all over the world today. Um, there is a benefit of global cooperation, of peaceful global cooperation in space, um, as opposed to the Cold War. Look at the International Space Station. You have... Uh, um, many nations working together in peace for over two decades now. And of course, um, another benefit of space exploration is inspiration. It is exactly the aspect I mentioned earlier. Space is something that evokes interest. Uh, it provokes you to ask questions. It's something almost and I'm aware I'm being in the chat with two philosophers. So correct me if I'm wrong. And there is some almost something metaphysical, something that goes yeah. beyond our daily experience in thinking about space. Um, and of also, of course, uh, an enormous educational aspect. Um, a lot of people say that if you want to um, engage a, a child or make them interested in education, there is two things that always work. The dinosaurs and space <laughs> <laughs> yeah that I think that's absolutely true um that that strikes me as a very beautiful and true point though isn't it that whatever apprehensions we might have about the way the space race is, is emerging whatever um anxieties we might have about its implications or not it the dream of space has always been alluring and continues to be alluring. Yes. And that that's not something we can ever underestimate, I suspect. I wonder if I could open up to, to Kelly and Neil. I wonder if you have remarks for Clara there. I, I was just wondering about the space. Um, I, I had a thought about the space tourism stuff that tied to something I said earlier on, which was um, when you ask Elon Musk, why is he going to Mars? And he doesn't answer pure vanity. <laughs> then he's not telling the truth to him, either himself or you, right? That's why he's doing it. He's showing off in some sense. He wants to do it so he can tell people he didn't to show it off. He'll also have other reasons, right? And that is the same reason that the kid that wants to go and see Jurassic Park for real or, or get into space will do too, because it's there, as you said. It's epic and it is, it is hugely, hugely attractive. But if we think sort of a bit more maybe rationally about it and we think about what are we getting out of this? That's when I start to think, how often does it need to be a person that goes? When, when we take vanity out of the equation, how mm -hmm. often does it need to be a person that goes? And given the resource costs, the safety costs, the things I've been thinking about so much, um, uh, why, 
why getting people up there for those sorts of benefits um, it, it would seem to be essential. And that's where I, I mean, that's where uh, I, I that's, that's the reaction I have to the likes of things, the likes of Musk yeah. are doing. Is I also think that, that people like Elon Musk uh, going himself and Richard Branson going themselves and eventually letting Amazon offer people contracts such that they have to go and work on Mars under these conditions. Um, I, I think they give us they give us sort of extreme instances of problems we already have on Earth to do with with who has the power to do what and over whom they have that power. But they're setting the norm that it is people that go and do these sorts of things. Yeah. When I think in all good responsibility for at least a good while yet many decades, it probably shouldn't be humans going off to do these things. It's just simply not worth uh, the risk. You're a real spoil sport, Neil. You know, all of those dreams that young people have, um, but you're maybe you're you're being the rationalist and maybe maybe that is the role that you should you play in this conversation that our dreams are wild and perhaps unsafe. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I gotta say, I, I mean, this is this is a common sort of theme that you know, the only the only reason Bezos and those kinds of people are doing this is because they're, you know, arrogant, rich guys, and they just want to do their thing. And that may well be true. I don't know them, right? But to quote Adam Smith badly, it's not out of the kindness of the baker's heart that he makes the bread. I couldn't care less what Bezos's actual motives are. I really don't care. I mean, I might care how he pursues those motives. If he wants to pave over Mars, I'm going to be upset about that. But I don't care why he wants to make a base on Mars if I think that a base on Mars is a good thing, right? And so I also think that there's a there's a sort of false dichotomy. You either have a clearly worked out plan that some you know organization signs onto, like a scientific mission, or it's just garbage. It's just personal vanity. But we know in human psychology and human history that that challenge, the, the existence of a challenge the need to explore new frontiers. This is a major part of human psychology. John F. Kennedy said at the dawn of the space age, we do these things not because they're easy, but because they are hard. <laughs> so, you know, it, I think it's great if NASA or ESA wants to, you know, launch a mission to Mars with a very specific goal of finding life or finding liquid water. That, that's great. But I also don't think there's anything wrong with someone launching a private mission to Mars just to see what's there and see what the challenges are to get people excited about it, provided that the way they're doing it is done responsibly. Like you could do that responsibly or not responsibly. And then to Neil's point, I don't have a strong view about robots versus humans in the near term, right? Um, I, I would say it's silly to argue that humans can do this in the longer term, if for no other reason than hu human beings, I mean, that robots can do this. Humans are going to want to get out there. But, you know, in the, in the near term, sure, if, if all you want to do is some very basic sort of exploration, robots can probably do that okay. They can't build sediments probably, though. Hmm. Um, we we, we need, do need to turn to our audience soon, but just to pick up on that, Kelly, because we mustn't let you, our free marketeer, run wild in this conversation. But just, just when you were talking, in, uh, when you were talking uh, earlier about Amazon running bases on on the moon, you know, we have a precedent for that, don't we? We have the East India Company setting up in India. Um, the whole history of colonization comes from business initiatives from the free market, in fact, um, which also entails the enslavement of people and the exploitation of resources. So how can we be sure that a, a free market economic approach to space is going to produce good 
uh, a kind of Adam Smith good. You can't. And, <laughs> and that's and that's not a legitimate thing to ask for. If you're talking about, you know, a completely new age of, of human exploration and you're going into situations that no human beings ever encountered before, demanding certainty is a good way to make sure that you go at a very slow pace, which is exactly why the Human Genome Project was outpaced by Celera Genomics, right? So I think there's, there's room for both approaches. There's room for a very careful, very thoughtful approach, and there's a room for an approach where people just try things because they want to, and there's nothing wrong with that, in my, in my view, anyway. Yeah, well, let's see what our audience think. This is getting uh, really good. I have to tell you, we've got amazing, stellar, in fact, questions from our audience. I'm going to turn to them. I also have dozens of things to ask you, but let me try and work through some of the ones we've got here. This is from David T. What would be the worst case scenario of how Musk and Bezos's decisions could affect, affect the space race? Any takers, what would be the worst case scenario of our tech billionaires uh, running amok in space? I guess that's my question. I, 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 it's kind of like what Neil asked me. I, I don't think that these particular individuals who are alive today are going to be able to accomplish a whole lot. The, the, they may be able to do some space tourism and get into space and maybe establish a very preliminary base if they're lucky on one of these worlds. That's, that's going to be about it. But what they can do is they can establish precedent. You know, So imagine that Amazon sets up a base on the moon and starts mining water that is used for rocket fuel for Amazon spaceships. And all of that is handled under Amazon law with standard private property rights. That's gonna set a precedent that everybody in the world is gonna wanna follow for the next 300 years. And I'm not, that, that may be a good way to do it. I don't really know, but I, it makes me very nervous to have that happen because Amazon wanted to do this first. Mm-hmm. Clara, did you want to come in? Well, uh, I didn't know Amazon wanted to do it. I know this as, as a likely exploration scenario for the for the space agencies. Right. Yeah. And Neil, did you have uh, do you have a nightmare scenario? <laughs> I think the nightmare scenario is the precedent scenario, and that's kind of my, what I was alluding to when I asked the question before in my, my mm. way, which was about well, how much damage can they really do in a sense? But I think the precedent answer is the correct answer. That is the damage they can do. Mm. It goes back to the thing we were just talking about before. I think if vanity is a good enough reason for Musk and and and, and Branson mm. and everyone else to do it, then you might find that that sets a certain sort of precedent or a set of expectations about what we're willing to tolerate. I mean, when when you treated new lands as big empty places when they weren't remotely empty, um, okay. then you were faced the complete, oh, well, what rules ought to apply in this big empty space? We've got this frontier, yeah. this this wild west. And, and I think that maybe we do have some historical precedents to get us started in thinking about how we should deal with them, including some stuff about international waters and resources in international waters, which has been, um, a, you know, a topic of debate for for a long time yeah. in philosophy. So I think we've got some of the tools to be able to think about that stuff, but I, I fear I fear the norms, the expectations and the precedents that are set um, uh, by, by, and I'm sticking to my vanity line, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, the, the vain and the obscenely wealthy uh, going off and choosing very important things as their playthings. Uh, let me ask a, a counter question to that from our, our audience, an optimistic question. This is from Oscari Savula. And actually, I'd be interested to see what you think of this, Neil. What is the most important innovation in space technology at the moment or in the foreseeable near term future? Do any of you have thoughts on that? What's the most important innovation in space tech at the moment? Wow. 
Yeah, please, Clara. <laughs> okay, I wouldn't be able to to judge which one of which one of them is the most important one, but we could say, uh, uh, or we could say that especially the life support system developed for astronauts to be able to survive and live and and be well in space do have practical applications on Earth here and and now. This is typically the the healthcare remote sensing. Uh, the robotics, um, we have seen remote operations being done uh, in, in Canada. Um, we could see especially the resource management, the water recycling, because the ISS is, is a closed loop system. So everything that's there, water, urine, um, has to be recycled. Um, and uh, we could see these technologies being used in uh, production lines to recycle water, saving an incredible amount of, of resources. So I think step by step, these technologies are being used more and more and more. Um, we can also see some uh, success stories outside of Europe, um, and hopefully it will pick up even more. And here goes to what I mentioned earlier, this is the, the real contribution to the sustainable development goals. Mm. Uh, efficient use of resources, new energy systems, and uh, um, and um, yeah, robotics and healthcare. That's really exciting. That is, K Kelly. Did you want to have a go at that question? Well, I mean, I'm not an engineer, um, and by definition, the most important technology is always hard to identify. Now, it's always yeah. easier to identify in retrospect. Yeah. But if I had to guess, I would say that. Uh, some of the stuff we're doing now with these miniature satellites, these CubeSats and mm. miniature probes combined with some of the swarm technology for artificial intelligence where you, you can get, you know, a thousand small robots to work together to perform some complex job. That's the kind of thing I suspect will make it practical to build some of these first structures in space because you can get the small guys up there very quickly. And then if they can coordinate in a large enough number, you can build a base or a or some sort of orbiting station way cheaper than we can do it now. Yeah. Um, if somebody is interested, I think there is a Wikipedia entry about the, the benefits of the Apollo program, uh, listing the materials and technologies and everything that's right. being in use these days. And we do have um, a booklet benefits of the International Space, Space, Space Station. That's something that's available on the internet. If somebody's interested to look, in, yeah. look into that. Oh, that's yeah. very helpful. I was going to I was going to point to that one as well. I think I, I glanced at it a couple of weeks ago, um, and and that is pretty fascinating to see how that goes. Um, I, I was just going to add that it, rather than a specific technology, and I, I can't add to the list that we've been given, but I, I did think that the general class of technologies that are going to be the most important are the what I think of as the slingshot um, uh, technologies, the ones that once you're up a bit, let you get a bit further, and that's what we've been talking about with these kind of cubesats. This about setting up bases, about purifying water and everything else. They're the things that are the the slingshot that lets you get that bit further because the the real the real friction literally is getting up off of this rock um and yeah. once we're beyond it if we can slingshot from there there's an awful lot we can do very quickly or yeah in terms of the period of time of new developments we could do an awful lot more yeah but i what think that's the, the class of technologies what was the wikipedia entry again just so that our audience know 
Um, I saw it, I actually saw it, I think it's posted on NASA's site from okay. somebody who was leading the Apollo, but it's the, the technological benefits of the Apollo program or Great. words to that effect. Maybe Clara's uh, got an actual link. I'm going to look it up. Um, let me um, pose to you the question asked by Selma Al-Kayat, because they are really grasping the nettle. Um, do you think life exists in space with a species as progressive as humans are? Progressive is in inverted commas. How do you think we should respond to a situation like that? Any takers? I, I've always thought it was had to be a near mathematical certainty that, 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 that such uh, 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 creatures will exist out there um, but I think what Clara was talking about before about how we hypothesize meeting them via sci-fi and fiction and all the rest of it tells us an awful lot about who we think we are <laughs> and the kind of thing we think we'll meet um, and uh, I have never let myself think too much about it because I think all you end up doing is seeing a narcissist reflection <laughs> when you start to think about uh, what you're going to what you're going to come across. But I, I yeah, I, the profundity of the implications are vast. I just don't know what they are. The yeah. best thing we've had so far, I think, is some of the better episodes of Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a bad place to start. Not a bad place. Kelly, I think, I think Neil's yeah. right. It's 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 a virtual certainty that there's life in the universe. Uh, one way of putting it is, if there isn't life in the universe that's at least as profound a discovery. Like if we could establish that, that would that would change everything too. But the question is not so much, is there life out there? It's what's it like and how far away is it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's the real question. And Neil asked earlier about like things we might do now that would cause a real problem. One, one example of something that we might be doing that would cause a real problem is attempting to communicate with worlds that are potentially inhabited. Um, METI or the messaging extraterrestrial intelligence is something that right now there are absolutely zero legal restrictions on. So literally anybody with the money to rent a radio telescope or a powerful laser can send whatever they want to into space. And, you know, a lot of really? people, oh yes. And it's been done at least 32 times. Yes. A lot of people who want to do this will tell themselves, well, any advanced alien would have to be beneficent or they would have blown themselves up. So it's cool. There's no risk. And to my mind, that's a deeply stupid argument because we don't really understand what an alien might be like. And to assume that it's beneficent, even if I think that's the most likely outcome, but to assume that and act accordingly without consulting anybody else on earth, that's insane. And that's a good example of the kind of Wild West stuff that's going on right now that nobody in their right mind would sanction if you just proposed it. But but that's yeah. what's happening. That is quite a staggering idea, isn't it? That people are sending messages, quite possibly with swear words, out into space. <laughs> Who knows how people will respond to it or aliens will respond to it. Um, Clara, there is a, a question for you which I, I, I mean to ask you anyway, um, but it's a really good question. Could you, could you please elaborate on what you meant by the theological implications of being a human in the space age? Uh, I, I believe you mentioned it once, but I'm interested in hearing more of your thoughts. So the theological implications of being a human in the space age. Sorry, my connection just broke. Uh, oh. I think that this sounds like a question for me, actually. It is. It was a question for you. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yes, of course. So uh, this is one of the section uh, from the Astrobiology and Society in Europe Today white paper, which is also, of course, available online. Um, it was written by a group of theologians 
who were really thinking around what would happen if we discover life beyond Earth. In this case, we are talking about primitive life on Mars or signs that primitive life has ever existed on the surface of the planet. And what would that mean for um, religions, for people on Earth? So I was uh, taking this perspective yeah, I think I mean I think it follows on from your 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 position in this debate, which is that space is not is not just about what we're doing to space, but what space is doing to us. Exactly. In some, and somehow it, this this relationship to space will make us understand ourselves differently, and it, it might have an impact on our our. Will it have an impact on our everyday lives? You, you have just really nicely described the, the, the core of, of my work in, in anthropology of science or in space and society studies. I'm really interested in what, what, what space and exploration brings into our lives, how it changes the way we think about ourselves, but also um, how we live uh, today, what technologies we use and, and uh, how we benefit from it. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, let's take some more questions. There are lots. Some of them are so long and thoughtful. <laughs> I'm not sure how to pass them. <laughs> there is there's a theme coming up, which is about uh, the, the climate crisis and whether our responsibility is to respond to our climate crisis here on Earth and whether there is something um, irresponsible in um uh, being distracted by the space race or whether we think this uh, the solutions to the climate crisis are in space and I wonder where where you each of you land on that argument about whether this is a good use of our resources or an exploitation of our resources um, for something uh, Kelly said earlier about there's always going to be problems on earth and and it's not like it's not like we can decide not to go to space until everything's perfect here. Um, but at the same time, I, the the uh, Gil Scott Heron song "Whitey's on the Moon" I think is really quite profound for pointing yeah. out on any given moment what those other priorities are. And I can't think of much of a bigger one uh, than our climate crisis. I'm in Glasgow just now. Our whole city is about to be shut down for the COP uh, twenty six uh, meeting, which very much hoping following like Kyoto Accords and similar that we're going to get a Glasgow Accord of some substantial sort we talk about for centuries. Um, but in the meantime, with these, um, with the, the the billionaires playing as they're playing, um, I, I think it is a, a good pointed question to ask what can be done there. And yet, I do suspect that some of the things that we're going to need to figure out in order to do our climate um, any good and to deal with carbon capture technologies and all the other things we might try and embrace, all the, the, the new forms of energy we might like, or to start using this vast infinite thing as some sort of dumping ground or whatever the range of things are, um, it's likely that we'll get fringe benefits there from exploring space as we get fringe benefits in just about every domain from doing so. So I don't think it's like put pause on this over here until we're completely settled with this over here. And yet I do think that the distribution of effort and wealth from humanity, not necessarily from organisations like government organisations, but from humanity put towards that, I, I, th I, I think what they're doing is irresponsible, the, the people we've mentioned. I think what they are individually doing is irresponsible and they ought to be thinking more carefully about it. But I don't think it's like we not to put pause on space till we've figured out Earth. I don't think mm -hmm. that, that's practical or, 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 or actually helpful. Ellie? 
one thing that is almost always implied in these questions is that it is possible to, to fix the problems on Earth without space, which is highly debatable. A lot of the problems on Earth have to do with scarce resources. What does space offer? Massively abundant resources. So, you know, first you have to have an argument that will convince me that you can fix that you actually can do it, right? But even after that, I, I think the way to look at it is a false dichotomy. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. <laughs> Sometimes in my classes, I, I, I propose to my students, I say, look, let's suppose you're the super czar. So you, you control the earth. You make all decisions. You don't have to consult with anybody. And someone asks you, well, how should we spend our research and development budget? And you think that global warming is the most important challenge. Fine. Do you assign 100% of the budget to global warming? Never do they say that. And then you say, well, okay, should we assign some money to space? Well, yeah, we should. So it really is not a debate about whether we should be doing it. It's a debate about what should we be doing when spending how much money, right? That That's the debate. And that's way more complicated than just waving your hands and saying space is a waste of time. We should concentrate on Earth's problems. But it's also the debate that we need to be having, right? Uh, Clara, did you want to come in? I know the debate from the exactly other side, which is, as I already mentioned, space is the tool uh, to use uh, Earth resources much more efficiently and gather information, knowledge about what are the processes on Earth. Uh, we need to understand what's going on and then come up with mitigation strategies. Yeah. And it's exactly the vantage point of space that gives you that, that viewpoint um, so I see um, um, that uh, huge contribution um, of, of space to what's happening on Earth by using the knowledge and technologies that are already there available. Yeah, thank you. Um, this is a very nice question. I always like questions like this. Um, what should we read to learn about space? This was a a question from Nat Arslan, what books would you suggest? Or, but I guess we could extend this, what films or documentaries or what, 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 what do we need to look at, read, learn from in order to understand space exploration better? It's such a big topic. It could be your own work. We could, you could plug your own books and articles, of course. <laughs> well, of course they should read our books. That that goes without saying. Those are brilliant. Um, I would say for a book, The Case for Mars by Robert Zubrin, Zubrin is a very controversial figure. You know, he's a he's a true believer in human mission in space. But the book is a really interesting book that makes a case. It's a little bit outdated, but it, it makes a good case for doing this kind of stuff. In terms of TV and movies, The Expanse um, is, in my opinion, one of the best. I mean, if you leave out the weird alien stuff, it's one of the best sort of visions of like the medium term future, 100, 200 years down the road, how, what humanity might look like when it's colonized our solar system, but it hasn't really gone beyond that. That's and and then the science is reasonably accurate. Again, leaving out the weird alien thing. So, <laughs> Neil, have you got any recommendations? Well, I was going to say when we were talking before about not having even the faintest idea of what uh, what alien species are going to look like. The film Arrival, I think, is a spectacular uh, a spectacular uh, <laughs> lesson about about that. I also think about some of the kind of um, the free um, free market 
uh, madness that may arise um, <laughs> is is I think it's is it Kim. I've just googled it there. I think it's Kim Stanley Robinson, Red Mars. I, I think that's a trilogy, but I I, I read the first one, and I, I, that seemed to me to be articulating something uh, really very uh, important. Yeah. Uh, but maybe I could flip it as a slightly twist and say if Charlie Brooker's got a bit of time in the next Black Mirror if he could start doing some stuff along that lines I think he's awfully prophetic oh, yeah. in yeah. his ability to understand uh, just how badly things might go if humans are yeah. control of themselves with new technologies or new new horizons so maybe maybe we can persuade him to write one for us yeah did you want to add to that Clara or you're happy with that yes well if you want to learn about space exploration, what is currently planned uh, for the coming uh, decades, uh, that includes going to Moon, going to Mars, then I would probably recommend um, the roadmap created by the International, uh, International Space Exploration Coordination Group. It's ISEC. Um, I can share the results somewhere if, if you like after the talk because that's where you get a glimpse of what is ahead of us. Um, and um, I would like to also mention that NASA is planning to land on the moon in 2024. The Artemis III should bring uh, two astronauts to the lunar surface, first time after the, uh, the time of Apollo 17. So I've just checked the date actually, just before <laughs> the event, it's, it's still 2024. Um, so fingers crossed for our American colleagues to accomplish yeah. that. And well, for the book, for the book, you know what I would just say? Why don't you try to write your own book about what space means to you? Yeah, it's yeah. such inspirational, uh, aspirational thing in us. Um, it's uh, intergenerational. It's intercultural thing. So write your own book. Yeah, what it means to you. <laughs> Thank you. Ke Kelly's just recommended The Three Body Problem by Liu Cizin, I think. Also, that's mm. brilliant. Yeah, so we're well, getting a great reading. Well, good. Great. Okay. I, I'm wondering whether, we, we're going to have to wrap it up soon, but I'm wondering whether whether I'm going to go into space. or Is this not going to happen in my lifetime? And certainly not if Neil's in charge because he would rather send a drone. But it, is it possible? Is it going to become democratised? Will more of our descendants be going into space, do you think? Clara? From what I can see, uh, it looks like it, that it's becoming a possibility. I'm not saying it's, same as, it's the same as aviation, like taking a flight somewhere. Uh, I would ask the question, like, where to space do you want to go? Do you want to go to the suborbital space? Do you want to go to the low Earth orbit? Do you want to go to the moon? These are different technological levels you need to achieve to be able yeah. to do that. So... It is a dream of my life, really, to see our planet from space one day. If that would be possible, I, I really don't know. I haven't thought hard enough about it, but I do like to holiday in hot places. So I'm sure space can provide somewhere <laughs> hot enough. Kelly, Kelly, you obviously think that our descendants are going to be having a great time on the moon. Or, or right. will it be a different not planet? Not maybe, when you're, maybe when you're a grandmother, if you have a bunch of money and you want to do it, maybe. 
but your kids and probably your grandkids are going to have opportunities to do this in a, in a pretty serious way. That's what I would predict. Yeah. Yeah. But if Neil's got anything to do with it, he's going to prevent us and send drones instead. Right, Neil? Well, if they, if they, if they make some headway on the safety considerations, I'll think twice about it. But the drones are going first. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah, Certainly does... when it's my kids and grandkids that are at stake. <laughs> that's for sure. That makes absolute sense. I want to ask you one final mind-blowing question, just because we have this gathered expertise here. But if and slash when the aliens arrive, what should we do? What I mean, Kelly, this is one of your questions. What should the protocol be? What well, should I we just do? actually wrote a paper with John Traphagen uh, about this. And, and what we basically argue is we should do nothing. We should do as little as possible because if a ship meets aliens, they're not going to have the expertise to handle the situation. And the one thing they want to do is avoid annoying the aliens and thereby endangering the earth. So we argue that even if the aliens are aggressive, they should allow themselves to be destroyed rather than fight back or do anything that might annoy the aliens. Wow. That is not a popular position, but I think it's probably yeah. the right I think Will Smith it would be really furious. There are a couple of films that you would ruin with that policy. Right. Neil, any thoughts? I wholeheartedly agree with this policy. <laughs> you see a bear, uh, you walk casually on. <laughs> you, you don't, you don't get a stick and see how much poking happens. No, I, I, I think the the profound unknown that you would be dealing with there means that anybody trying to make decisions about what you do on that spot uh, ought not to be the person making decisions. Yeah. Clara, you're a romantic. I think you'd probably have try and have a chat, offer them a cup of tea and biscuits. Uh, well, I I I spend some time researching or thinking about this topic, and I really think it would depend on what type of life form would be discovered or would we would need to make a contact with. And I imagine this is um, a scenario of a first contact that has no parallel in history. Uh, so I don't think we can predict anything um, that would sort of unfold as it, as it would happen. Yeah. Exciting times, though. Thank you, Clara Kapova, Neil McDonnell and Kelly Clemson. Thank you to, to Nena Chuku, our administrator at the Forum for Philosophy, who keeps us afloat in these events seamlessly running. She's our, our space station in Houston. Um, and thank you to our audience for really amazing, probing questions. Um, and I really hope that you might join us again. If you'd like to learn more about our work at the Forum for Philosophy, you might like to visit our page, which is philosophy-forum.org. Um, and you can browse through our back catalogue of um, greatest hits too. Uh, it's all fascinating, but this has been a particularly rich and fascinating discussion. So I want to thank our guests once more. And if you're wherever you're listening at home, I hope you're giving them a raucous round of applause. On the 1st of November, we're back with Modern Conversations, a philosophical discussion about how we communicate in an age of tech and social media. And then I'm back on the 8th of November with a special event on the life and legacy of Simone de Beauvoir. So do join us for that. Thank you again and goodbye. Thank you.